Resilient Cyber Podcast brings you conversations from diverse cybersecurity professionals, ranging from executives, subject matter experts, and aspiring entrants. Today's diverse threat landscape requires systems that can withstand a variety of cyber incidents, remaining trustworthy and secure. Thank you for joining the Resilient Cyber Show. My name is Chris Hughes, and today I'm joined by Chimai Sharma. Chimai, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Excited yeah. that this many people are excited about open source. Yeah, I am uh, super excited to chat with you. I've, you know, before we dive into it, I shared your research uh, a couple times on LinkedIn. Now it's gotten like over thirty thousand views, so people are really, really interested in the topic. Um, and we're going to dive into the research. But before we do that, can you tell me a bit about your background? You know, kind of how you got to where you are and whatnot. Sure. Um, I took a little bit of the atypical route into tech of I was a nerdy English major in undergrad, and that gave me about as many job opportunities as you would expect, um, but also loved computers. And so was a self-taught developer, was a software developer for a consulting company, the federal, which federal government clients, and then started my own um, small software development company. We made bespoke software for mostly international development companies. Okay. Now, how did you pivot, you know, pivot from like the, the tech background, the software background into the legal space? And also like one thing I've been wanting to ask you is I imagine it gives you a pretty unique perspective, you know, maybe compared to some of your peers who come from strictly the legal background and haven't been maybe hands-on in a technical perspective, for example. Yeah. Um, it's, I think it's one of those stories of I really loved coding and it's one of those activities that you can do for 18 hours straight and like video games, not realize that you spent all that time. But what really interested me were more strategy and policy questions. Um, we were being asked to build software that I was like, this is really questionable. Uh, you want me to build what and how? And you want me to collect what kind of information and put it just in some access database somewhere? Like, And so I wondered whether there were regulations here and found that there were very few. Um, and if there were any, startup people weren't talking about them. And that kind of got me interested in the law. And, you know, as I said, I was an English major. So reading really long, boring stuff has never been a deterrent for me. And then, yeah, yeah my technical background, um, I would say yes and no in terms of being helpful. Uh, we hear a lot about gatekeeping in the tech community, and I don't want to be a contributor to that. Um, so I think lawyers can definitely be valuable in tech, even if they don't know how to code. But um, I think the benefit that I've gotten from being a former developer is that I care about these subjects. And so being less familiar, not a lot of lawyers have open source on the mind. Um, and I'm less scared of talking to engineers. So having been in the world, uh, it's not scary for me to read a computer science paper or talk to a Debian developer. Yeah, I think you raised a couple interesting points there, you know, in terms of the career transition is like we often hear about diversity in the career field, for example, uh, that diversity of backgrounds coming from different, you know, career fields and, and transitioning and so on can bring a lot of unique perspectives and, you know, uh, viewpoints maybe that weren't you know, typically in the cyberspace, for example. Uh, so it's really interesting that you've been able to blend and, and do that. Um, so before we dive into like the uh, specifics of the research paper itself, I want to ask like, what led you down the path of, of starting this, uh, this research endeavor and how long did it take? Because you have over 300 citations. <laughs> it must've taken a little bit. Yeah. Um, it was 
as most fun, interesting research projects, a serendipitous, like, huh, this is interesting to uh, crap. I have to spend a lot of time writing this paper because it's really relevant right now. Um, but obviously, you know, we all know Log4J or the Log4Shell incident happened in December 2021. And since then, I have been surprised at either how no one in my community of lawyers and policymakers was talking about it anymore. Um, and if they were talking about it, they were talking about it as a open source is bad and the developers are bad and we should put liability on them. And all of those conversations sounded bananas. And I was like, that can't be right. And so decided I felt like I needed to explore it. As a developer, I've used a lot of open source. I think everyone has. And, you know, I don't want that community to take any of the brunt of this because I don't think it's that's the problem. And so uh, to how much work it took, I think somewhere around the summer, the momentum on this really heated up, especially after the EEO and cybersecurity. And I kind of, you know, did like a three week sprint of very long days, just kind of cranking this out. Um, so a lot of like m weeks and weeks of uh, research came together in some like delirious long days of writing a lot of footnotes. Yeah, I wanted to ask, like it's slated to be uh, published or already is published, I think in uh, some North Carolina publication of law, right? Or, or mm -hmm. something along those lines. Uh, just out of curiosity, before diving into the paper, like, you know, what's that process? And, and what does, you know, publishing in, in that kind of an outlet do in terms of who it informs or how it can be useful? Yeah, um, it's a great question. Because for for the tech community, this is more lawyerly than I think many papers I've read out there. And for the legal community, this is way more technical than many legal papers out there. And so it was a weird hybrid of the two. But, you know, as a lawyer, kind of what I thought I could, you know, you're talking about diversity and workforces. I'm a rare breed of a tech focused lawyer. And I thought that this is something that lawyers and policymakers needed to be thinking about a lot more. And there's often like a translation issue of it's hard to care about something when you don't understand it and it hasn't been, you know, articulated to you in a compelling way. And so that's why I picked a legal outlet. Um, and the legal world is interesting in that our, our like the forefront of scholarship is uh, law school run law reviews. So you have a lot of really smart students, but they're students uh, reviewing thousands of manuscripts and picking which ones get published. And so a lot of it was I was keeping in mind um, I wanted this to be relevant. So I wanted to make sure that people were like, oh, this is really of the moment. Like this isn't like a, you know, in the 1920s, we talked about this and like, let me revisit that. Um, but I also wanted to make it something that without short shrifting the tech, I could make it comprehensible to someone who might never have looked at a command prompt. Yeah, what I thought was fascinating is looking through the citations. You know, I like to read a lot too. And, uh, you know, you had cited everything from like Wealth of Nations from like, you know, say 1700s uh, to the most recent, you know, 22, 2022 publications on technology and open source, for example. So it did span a, a broad uh, breadth of, you know, uh, perspectives and, and history. So it was really awesome. Um, you also penned a, a, an article that was titled Digital Infrastructure is Built on a House of Cards. Um, was that a subset of the broader, you know, paper, the research publication? And if so, can you elaborate on like the House of Cards comment exactly? Yeah, yeah. Um, Lawfare is one of my favorite outlets for anyone who's tuning in and doesn't uh, follow it. I think it's great. Uh, it's a little plug for them. But um, I wanted, this was kind of me testing the field um, for lawyers specifically. I don't think I was saying anything, um, you know, that you know, worldview shifting, but I thought it would be the first time that a lot of lawyers would have read this content. And I wanted to see 
how much of a knee-jerk reaction I got from people on various aspects of it, from the critical infrastructure aspect, the liability aspect, to the um, you know various other aspects of government intervention, like funding aspect. Um, and so I'd done a lot of research and kind of distilled my like preliminary ideas into this piece and put it out in the world to see you know what the Bruce Schneiders of the world thought of it. Um, but Essentially, this was my this was my like sales pitch for the article of why people should care about it. Um, I wasn't really trying to solve the problem as much as I was trying to say, please start paying attention to this. Um, and the House of Cards analogy is, you know, one of those evocative <laughs> uh, analogies or metaphors that uh, would maybe get people to click on the link. But I think that maybe House of Cards is a little bit misleading of an analogy in that it implies that all of the unique components are very flimsy. And I don't think that's the case. Maybe it's more like Jenga in that, you know, the structure overall can be insecure because the entire integrity of it relies, can rely on one component. So if you take one part down, the rest of it goes down. And so this isn't an open source issue, but a systemic security issue in critical infrastructure. And so I wanted to communicate that what is unique here, what makes this different than an all software issue is the fact that our ecosystem is only as strong as the weakest link because that will be where the vulnerability is found. And then that is where the barrage of attacks will start. We don't know what we're using in a lot of our critical infrastructure. So we are unsure of the like security posture of the various components we rely on. And then if we don't know what we're using, it probably means we're not paying a lot of attention to it. And that probably means we're not maintaining it very well. And so I think that there are these kind of like ecosystem in the critical infrastructure issues that are making it insecure and that you have these like barrier pressure points that, you know, if you pushed on one of them, the, the scope of the risk is huge. Yeah. When you switch to the kind of the Jenga analogy, I mean, the house of cards definitely caught my attention. I'm sure it caught the attention of many others, you know, cause it kind of just, it, it catches your, uh, your eye in terms of, whoa, this maybe is a big problem. Uh, but the Jenga analogy actually fits really well because we all know the, the famous picture of the, you know, the sole developer in <laughs> Uh, Nebraska, who you know maintains this component, that the whole system uh, kind of depends on basically. Exactly. So I love that analogy too. Um, so before we dive into like you know why open source is so critical, you know even in critical infrastructure, for example, you you kind of open the paper discussing some of the nuances and differences between proprietary software and open source. Can you kind of elaborate on those for those in the audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know that the members of the audience are probably very familiar with this, so I don't want to kind of like recreate the full summation of all of open source and what it's been and what it will be. Um, but I think there are three key differences in open source and proprietary software. And that is the code itself and how it is generated, how it is used, the community that's building it and the licenses that govern it. And so for the code itself, I mean, as we know, it's free and open. And that means open for contributions, scanning for vulnerabilities, patching, maintaining, you can transition maintainers. Um, you have the benefit of the crowdsourced support um, whereas with closed source code, you have a limited team of developers and that's kept very close hold, uh, with open source, you can also fork, um, which is a very unique ability to just copy and build off code, which improves competition and innovation because you are building off of the work of others and providing the community with more options that they might prefer. And so you have that ecosystem of new ideas being built out, um, with closed source because it is proprietary, it's intellectual property those kind of trade secrets are kept very secret. Um, open source provides companies, because it's free, it provides users and companies and the government with tech that they might not be able to build themselves. 
Um, so you are kind of expounding the benefits of certain kinds of innovation by making them accessible to everyone. It also saves people the cost of developing them. And so, yes, obviously free is great, but we also don't often talk about how there are you know, positive externalities to that. You get to reinvest the money you saved. And so that has kind of cascading network benefits for productivity, for innovation. Um, and so that's why we see so many entities internationally using open source. Um, and then there's Linus's law, which you know anyone in open source security is talking about it. Um, it is both uh, kind of the promise of open source security and the you know a a, a some a, something to look at for why there might be insecurities there, um, which is essentially all bugs are shallow with more enough eyeballs. Um, and so when you have a full crowdsource community and you really direct everyone's attention to it, you will always have more. Um, resource to support a project in a vacuum, all other things kept equal. Um, the risks of that, though, is obviously that there are not enough eyes on every project. On some projects, there are a lot of eyes. Um, on others that are maybe equally important, they are um, they go under the radar. Uh, I think that uh, Josh Bressers, who I think you had on the podcast quite recently, one of his uh, studies showed that over 50% of NPM packages only had one maintainer. Um, and so, I mean, that's just, that's a, you know, if you're looking at the bus factor of how many people uh, you have to take out for an entire project to fail, like it's a really low bus factor and that's very dangerous. Um, and then there's the fact that, you know, the code is easy to use. I just have to pull it off of Git. Uh, there's no oversight. There's no preventing me from using bad code. It'd be like, you know, the kind of snake oil out there. If somebody tells me that this is good and I choose to use it and I don't know that I'm going to be harmed by it. Um, and again, this is not to say that open source is bad. It's just in all ecosystems, there's always going to be better and worse products. Um, and then there's the dependency problem. And like, open source is a Russian doll. It There are so many, because you can have that build off factor of forking, building, importing libraries, you have so many dependencies that even... The best dependency scanner on the market probably wouldn't have been able to find log4j in some systems. Yeah. Oh, oh. So, yeah. Sorry, I'll pause right there because I just talked a lot. No, no, you're fine. Uh, I think something that you really pointed out, and I try to harp on sometimes, is like uh, all of our conversations lack nuance often in terms of like open source software being more secure than proprietary software, or vice versa, uh, because you may have a project that has many maintainers and a robust community of contributors and involvement, or you may have you know one maintainer. And then same thing from the proprietary perspective, you may have a massive vendor that has tons of resources and investment, or you may have a, a startup who's bootstrapped and just trying to get something to market. Uh, but we don't have a convers you know, we don't have those conversations with that nuance in mind. Uh, it's always right. just kind of like, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of like, there's no gray. It's just like, you know, one must be better than the other. And, and there's a lot of nuance there that we'd never discuss. Uh, so I liked how you point out that Linus's law doesn't hold up if there's not enough eyeballs. And then you provided a lot of statistics showing, hey, there's simply not enough eyeballs in many cases. Uh, so that's something I thought was really fascinating. Uh, so one thing I wanted to ask you too is, you, you make the case that, you know, open source software should be designated like a critical infrastructure or at least a critical infrastructure subsector, right? Um, you know, why do you think that should be? And why do you think it hasn't already been the case, given that you you were also pointed out in your research that it's already pervasive across, you know, essentially every critical infrastructure and subsector? Yeah. Um, I do make the case for open source, both being something that fundamentally supports critical infrastructure and in itself should be considered critical infrastructure. Um, I think uh, the 2022, uh, I, I cannot remember which security vendor, I think it was Snike, but maybe uh, 
uh, Anat said 97% of all software contains some amount of open source. Um, and it's not a negligible amount. It's about three quarters of all of the code out there is open source, which means that a over half, like the majority of code that our most important life functions rely on is open source code. And the use is only going to grow. We see that the number of components and open source components and software is growing year over year. Um, so this is kind of like the train has left the station. Um, we shouldn't move away. My argument is that open source provides so many benefits that there is no reason to move away from it in a you know categorical way. Um, but we also can't move away. I, as I mentioned, like with the dependency issue, with the scope of like its use in the public, there is no moving away from open source at this point. Um, and so we have to take the world as it is. And we have to acknowledge that if all of our critical infrastructure relies on open source, that risk surface is huge. And that would be fine if the probability of risk was low. But as I talked about, there are aspects of, there are different characteristics of projects that should make us concerned about their security posture. I think it said that on average, an open source component has about five high risk to critical unpatched vulnerabilities. Um, that's not great, uh, especially because, you know, I say that over half of the critical infrastructure's code is open source. It's not like all of that code is different. Chances are a lot of that code is using the same projects again and again. And so once one of those projects has a flaw, it's a multiplier effect. And so to the sustaining critical infrastructure, clearly it upholds everything that we rely on. Clearly there's a risk. And so that's where I get to my argument of we should treat it as critical infrastructure, because if this goes down, everything else goes down with it, which is CIS's general, you know, fast oversummarization of what critical infrastructure entails, that if something happens to it, our national security, public safety, and economic security goes down. Um, technically, it could fall under the informational technology sector. There's 16 sectors of critical infrastructure. IT is one of them. Um, but I think that this is where kind of the nature of open source makes it harder for us to see its value and importance in society. It is a component. It's like the nail in the nuclear reactor as opposed to, you know, the nuclear reactor itself. Um, and the nail is really important. I mean, we see this with semiconductors. Who was talking about semiconductors 10 years ago beyond, you know, technologists? And now everyone is because we realize how important it is. So it is a support component, but really, really important, but often goes under uh, recognized. And so I think that by calling it critical infrastructure, you elevate its status, you make it more important, you bring it more into public attention, and the IT community is not going to do that themselves. So hoping that IT takes care of it is not going to work anymore because we've seen that they are not even reviewing what open source components they're using, um, including when they're selling to the federal government. And so we want to cut the middleman here, is my argument, um, so that we can provide resources, prioritization, and intelligence about the ecosystem and threat risks directly to open source and not as a conduit through commercial companies. Um, and so I think that, you know, there's, I, I'll, I can go into this, but there's a whole lot of kind of structures in critical infrastructure regulation that once we open it up to open source directly, there's a lot of benefits to be had. Um, and then, Kind of, this is like more legalistic, but one aspect of critical infrastructure that is frustrating, I think, to a lot of people that care about um, supply chain security and specifically open source is that 
um, consumer and commercial IT is exempted from this list of Section 9 entities, which the government considers the most important of the important critical infrastructure entities. The EEO basically, um, 13636, said you you should, I like, you know, directed DHS, please identify all of the most important critical infrastructure entities. However, no commercial or consumer information technology entity can be categorized as such. So that's just excluding a broad swath of our most important critical infrastructure from this kind of review and oversight and support. Um, so maybe kind of calling open source on its own a critical infrastructure sector, we can get around that barrier because we're going not to the commercial aspect, like the application layer of it, but to the components itself. Yeah, I wanted to dig a little deeper on that to make sure I guess I and un uh, others understand as well, like, you know, why do you think this commercial exemption exists, uh, given that, you know, you make the case and we'll talk about this in a minute, but you talk, you talk about the least cost avoider being the vendors themselves. Uh, so if they are the least cost avoider from an economical perspective, you know, why would we preclude them from this purview? Because they're such a critical aspect of securing this ecosystem. Yeah. Um, you know, this would be maybe a follow on paper I would write. Uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, not just with open source, but software generally. It is a very unique industry in terms of the protections it has given itself or has been given. Um, for example, you know, I can reverse engineer my laptop. I am not allowed to reverse engineer code. Um, and it has been exempted from liability in a lot of categories. And this just feels like more of the same where I think there's a little bit of fear of the tech community and putting like onerous burdens on them and stifling technology and innovation and to some degree, that might be valid. And in other instances, I think it's gone too far. Um, so I don't I don't know. There was no it was one line in the EO that exempted them with no further explanation on it. Um, but that has had huge impact in terms of we just don't know what critical assets there are. And so I think we've kind of walked that back a little bit with the SBOM requirement, which we could talk a little bit about later, um, where to some degree we are going to try to understand the software that important federal systems are using. But that is going to be in kind of like an administrative procurement way and less in a this is our DHS database of critical assets that we are prioritizing on a moment by moment basis. So there is like a slight difference there. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, not to go on a little bit of a rant, but I think that that preclusion of commercial entities, you know, has something to do with maybe lobbying and other aspects like that, which go back to your House of Cards comment, maybe for fans of the show. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, I wanted to move on. So I want to ask in, in the second part of your paper, you basically go into the details of the origins of open source software security issues and barriers to their resolution. Um, you know, what are some of the major issues or barriers typically or traditionally in terms of solving, you know, some of these open source security issues? Yeah, I think here I go kind of into very Econ 101 theories, because I think they're helpful, both from, I actually think they apply, and I think that they're a helpful framework with which to think about these problems. Um, so what I argue, or what I do is I apply a public goods framework to open source. And so generally speaking, the two characteristics that make a public good is for something to be non-excludable, in that I cannot prevent you, Chris, from using it. And non-rivalrous in that me and you using it at the same time doesn't like we are not impacting each other's use of it, no matter how many people are using the same thing. Open source is often called a public good. And that is true to some degree. I think open source has two components to it, and one is often forgotten. So open source is comprised of the code itself, but it's also comprised of the maintenance of the code. The code can't exist without the maintenance, the community, the contributors, the security measures. 
And so the code itself is non-rivalrous. Uh, obviously, it's non-excludable. It's open that they made the decision to make it non-excludable, but it's also non-rivalrous in that we can, as many times as we want, we can pull a project off of GitHub and that won't impede anyone else's use of it. From the maintenance perspective, there's been a lot of conversation and documentation around the more use of a project there is, the more maintenance is required to support it. Everything from you're going to have, first of all, the risks, the risk of it is more important and it increases because more people are using it. So there needs to be more attention to it. More attention to it means that you might be finding more vulnerabilities. You might be filing more bug reports. You might be making kind of like really annoying BS requests for features that you still have to sort through as a maintainer. It's just a lot more work. And what I say is open source is an impure public good and that it is somewhat rivalrous. So the more we use a project, the more the maintenance for it needs to ramp up. But that is a finite good. That is not non-rivalrous. We can overuse. We can deplete all of the altruistic maintainers out there by using too much of open source. Um, it's not going to look quite the same as when you have physical good, but I think you know everyone can follow what I mean here. Um, and so I think that the issue here is that there are now two groups in charge of maintenance. There's the open source contributors, the maintainers, the community itself, but there's also the users. Both are involved in the maintenance component of open source. The maintainers, I mean, think of it as like, you know, we often call roads and bridges um, the public goods of society. So for a road, you need a maintenance crew to regularly go out and fix potholes or um, any other kind of damage that happens to it or just expand it, grow more networks because you have a bigger population in a city. And so we think of the open source community as like that maintenance crew, the contractors, the people who are actually building up those uh, that infrastructure. Um, but the second component is the, you know, I say the user and the vendor of open source, uh, but in the road analogy would be us as drivers. Um, everyone from us to the 16 wheeler, you have to be a responsible driver. Otherwise you are going to make the road unusable for other people. Whether if you're an irresponsible driver, you get in an accident and call a pileup, cause a pileup, or you are a, you know, freight truck and you are exceeding the weight limit on a bridge, you know, there is a responsibility aspect for users. And the less responsible we are as users, the more work there is for the maintenance. And so what I'm saying is that that group, us as users of open source, we have been neglecting our responsibility there. And our responsibility is twofold, to use it responsibly, but also to contribute back to it. So with roads, our tax dollars are the ones that are paying for the maintenance. We have no equivalent in open source because it's free. And so I think that that leads to a lot of market failures. Um, and I think the three that I kind of focus, I categorize a lot of it, I fall under three buckets, free riding, negative externalities, and asymmetric information. And free riding, I think, is very self-explanatory. Um, it's free. And so why would you do anything other than use it for free? Um, so you have people using the code for free without contributing. You have people using the code and doing no security checks because they're like, well, Google's using the same code, so they're probably looking out for security, so I don't need to do that. Um, and then there's people who are free riding off of the actual like responsible vendors like the Intel's, Google's, Microsoft's that are you know contributing back to open source, that are donating funds, that are raising awareness. So they're like, we don't need to do that. Somebody else is doing it. So that's kind of like a diffusion of responsibility effort. And then there's also like a bystander effect of, okay, maybe some people do realize like, well, we do kind of need to jump in here, but they don't want to be the first mover. They, they're like, well, somebody else can jump in first and then I'll go. And then if everyone thinks that, no one's going to start. Um, negative externalities is, uh, I guess to oversimplify it, is 
an impact of a transaction, which in this case would be the use of open source, that is on people, parties that are not within that transaction. So it's not the open source maintainer and it's not the user of the open source, but it's us as society. And so when you have open source and critical infrastructure, that increases the risk to society substantially more than the risk to the company itself. So if I am a company that is contributing really important software to critical infrastructure, and there's a vulnerability that takes me offline, that cost is the cost to me of being offline, reputational harm, whatever, liability, what have you. When it's an open source vulnerability, though, if that same code is used in 100 other pieces of software or um, technology that is supporting critical infrastructure, as a society, our risk surface is the cost to the company times 100. So any given company is not going to internalize that societal cost, because if they did, that would mean they'd be investing more in security. But right now, they just don't have the incentive to do that. Um, and then there's kind of like the asymmetric information problem, which is a very fancy economic term for just we don't all know the same information and we don't know nearly enough information. And the irony about open source is that the code is public, um, but the ecosystem is really opaque. Uh, we can see the source code, but we as a maintainer cannot see, we might not even know who the contributors are because it could be anonymous, synonymous. Um, we don't know who all of our users are because downloads are not a great proxy for actual use. Um, we don't know what the users, what they're using our components for. There's no paper trail. So back to like the difference between proprietary. With proprietary it is intellectual property you have a legal team that is going to be involved in the purchase of software or the sale of software. You have a procurement team that's going to be in charge of vetting a vendor and writing down all of the like, you know, millions of pages of paperwork that have to be done. Um, you'll probably have an approved vendor list. Some level of vetting happens. When you have that source code, it's kept really close hold. You only give out binaries of it. Um, and then you're going to invest more in the maintenance of it because if you don't do it, no one else is going to do it. So you can't free ride. Um, and then the most important thing is you have a paper trail. If I am a company, I know who I'm selling my source code to. And I'll get more into that with my least cost avoider, but we don't have that same information for open source. We don't know which projects are most important, which ones lack the most resources, and who is the most irresponsible users out there because we don't know who's using what. Yeah, one thing I, I thought was really interesting there is uh, you talk about the asymmetries of information. I wanted to ask your perspective on asymmetries of resources or capabilities, too, because we talked about how open source kind of democratizes access, access to like innovative technologies or you know code and capabilities and so on, because uh, anyone can use it, right? Uh, small organizations can save development time and resources and bring something to market quicker, for example. Uh, but they may not have the same resources or capabilities like a Google or Intel, IBM and so on to contribute back to that ecosystem. Uh, so how do we balance like, you know, that, that access and use by everyone, but not necessarily expect the same uh, contribution or, or involvement back if it's a small organization that doesn't have those capabilities and resources? Absolutely. I, I will not pretend here that I have a perfect answer to that. I think that that is going to be the question that is most important to answer next. And I think that the reason we haven't come to a good answer for it is because we just haven't brought all of the relevant parties to the table. Right now, who we're talking to are the big companies and the government. And those are not representative of the entire open source ecosystem. And so I want startups to continue to be able to use open source operating systems for their technologies rather than have to build it themselves. I think 
there is a, you know, to your conversation about nuance, while I am an evangelist for open source, I think there is the harsh realities of if the product you are purporting to build, though, is something we consider critical and you are not able to invest in responsible security practices, I like pains me to say you shouldn't be in that space. And that's a it's a tough reality, but I think anyone in this space knows there are a lot of small, crappy vendors out there that are selling to the government because they're cheaper, they can undercut opponents, um, and they're basically just using an open source project, unmaintained. They're not maintaining it themselves. They put a GUI on it and they sell it. And that's not good. That's not good for society. So I think there's a difference between I'm using like a prototype drone that has open source code in it for recreational purposes versus we're selling this software to the military for uh, like Intel purposes. And I think that a different calculus needs to be made there. And as anyone in supply chain security understands, like risk calculus is a very context specific question. And so for companies that are in the very, very important spaces, I think the burden of responsibility is higher, both for the measures that they take and the contributions they make back to the community. Um, I also think that this is why it's a big coordination issue. And this is why I don't think that the market will do it themselves because so, for example, um, there are really wonderful efforts going on with like OpenSSF to build security tooling. And that's phenomenal. And they're being funded by major companies. And I think that's great. That scale just needs to be ramped up so much. Like if we want to secure the open source ecosystem, big, big companies with deep pockets should be investing in basically making it a push of the button kind of process to secure open source. Now, I know that there are a lot of security people on the line that are like, you can't ever push a button and secure open source. And I get that. I agree. A software development lifecycle is a very important thing. And it's not something you can automate that simply. But you can automate a lot of it. And so if you start doing that, you take the burden off the smaller companies, you allow them to continue to benefit from open source, and you secure the open source ecosystem for everyone else. And like I call that the tragedy of the commons issue of it is in everyone's best interest to contribute what they can or what we think is proportionate to their importance and use back to open source, but no one's doing it. And that's to everyone's detriment. Yeah. You, you made a lot of interesting points there. You know, one, you mentioned uh, Bruce Schneier earlier, who's kind of like a godfather in the security space. Um, and then there's another individual I follow around software supply chain security and SBOM named Joshua Corman, who has been talking about this for like a decade or more. Um, and he talks about it. He uses the term uh, fewer, better suppliers. Uh, and you kind of point to that when you talked about people operating in certain critical infrastructure sectors and so on. Maybe it will just be the reality that like the cost of security is a barrier to entry for some firms. And that's the way it is, depending on the sensitivity or the criticality of the systems they're supporting and so on. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you talked about, you know, uh, these big organizations contributing back and such and, and vendors more broadly. Uh, so moving on to like least cost avoider, uh, concept you you brought up here for for folks not familiar what is least cost avoider and you know how do software vendors fit into that and you know why are they best suited to be the ones to fix some of these open source uh, security issues um least cost avoider is one of my favorite econ theories because now in like life you can just kind of go around on dinner and like to your friend who's making like you know big private company money like well you're the least cost avoider here you should pay for dinner um but jokes aside uh, it is a very important concept in that the party best suited to bear the burden should bear the burden and internalize externalities regardless of fault. So this is not a question of whether you are most like culpable or responsible. Um, this is a question of what is most efficient for society. 
Because for example, I might be the most culpable, but I have shallow pockets. And if you make me pay for something, I won't be able to. And that makes everything worse off for everyone. Or maybe I'm most culpable, but I provide a very important service. And if I am being made to pay for something, it totally sinks me. And then that deprives all of society of this service. And that's also worse for society. So we do the calculus of who is it going to hurt the least and benefit society the most to take on a burden? And I argue here, it's the commercial vendor. And I argue this, and the nice thing here is that they are also, in my opinion, the most culpable parties in this process. I think they are the weakest link in the supply chain, I think, partially because they are best suited to do these things. And the reason they're best suited is because, specifically with open source, they have exclusive control at the point of integration. And studies have shown that if you scan and resolve a vulnerability at the point of integration, that will cost 1% of the cost it would to resolve that vulnerability in the end product. That's huge. That means that anytime you're not doing that, you are imposing that cost on society. And so they also have the best access to information. So as I said, there's no paper trail in open source. They could create that paper trail. And I think that's where this, you know, Alan Friedman really prescient for years and years has been working on SBOMs and has actually brought it to fruition and it's happening. And that's some effort to create that paper trail. I think it needs to go further. I think you need to use that paper trail to hold people accountable. Um, So part of it is disseminating that information downstream. Now, as a customer, if I'm given binary code, I have no idea what open source components are in it. I don't know. I couldn't scan even if I wanted to. I rely on my vendor to tell me information about what to patch, when to patch. I mean, when we have an iPhone, I get push notifications like we need to update your iOS right now. Um, And then, as we all know, one iOS update can introduce some fix some bugs and introduce new bugs. And so it's a continuous process. So if I am a software vendor, I am the source of that software. I should continuously be scanning for it so that to the to the interest of all of my customers, rather than have each of them take on the cost of doing that themselves, when, as I mentioned, some of them can't even do that even if they wanted to. Um, And then there's kind of just like the, you know, as you mentioned, the entities that don't have the expertise or resources. I think that that's more often than not. Anywhere from me that was using, you know, if I use QuickBooks, Um, to a water utilities company that has had the same software vendor for the past 30 years and just renewed the contract year over year, um, they don't have the expertise to even begin to do security checks. And whether we like that or not, that's just the reality. And so, you know, in the car part world, in car manufacturing, I, as a user, buy a car. Theoretically, I'm inspecting the car, right? You know, look for dents. But for the most important stuff, I have no ability to look at an engine and see whether or not it is faulty. And so we don't put that responsibility on me. When something bad happens and it was an engine defect, that goes back up to any link in the supply chain for that car that could have found that and didn't can be held responsible. I could sue all of them at once, including the dealership. And so I think that the same kind of approach needs to be taken here, where those are the, like in the car manufacturing world, they know what they're doing. They have the expertise so they could have fixed the problem. They could have found it. They could have fixed it. I can't. In this world, the software vendors, they're choosing to take that open source out of the you know, ether where it's not touching anyone's lives and they're putting it in a product and they're putting it in front of end users. Therefore, they are exposing users to any risk in them. So they need to provide assurances in that product. 
Yeah, I think you point out that uh, the national cyber director, Chris Inglis, you know, makes this analogy as, as you know, to address the asymmetries of information, I think is the way he approached it. Um, I also think it kind of, it presents like almost like a, it reminds me of like a tax uh, scheme in the sense that like the, the more you earn, the more you pay. Uh, so for a vendor's perspective, the more successful you are, the more, you know, reciprocal investment we expect back into the open source ecosystem, perhaps. Um, so it kind of reminds me of that. Um, so moving on to the third part of your paper, you touched on some of the current interventions and efforts. Uh, can you touch on or elaborate on some of those there? And you already touched on some of them, like the, the White House, you know, Software Security Summit, OpenSSF and so on. But uh, yeah, curious your thoughts on that front. Yeah, um, I think what's heartening in this space is that there is stuff being done. I think that, you know, people like you care, people like me care. There's a lot of organizations that are doing a lot of practical things. Um, you know, for example, we see like big popular open source registries imposing two-factor authentication requirements on the authors of their most important, most popular projects. So we saw this with PyPI, we saw this with uh, Ruby NPM. Um, we are seeing GitHub in 2024. I think they're going to require two-factor authentication for all contributors on their platform. Um, I'll get to this later, but you know. That's that's been met with pushback. That's it's it's a controversial move. I think it should feel like a no brainer, but even the most tech minded people, for whatever reason, can't handle um, approving a button on Duo. Um, but uh, there's also entities that are building things like SigStore. So uh, we have OpenSSF. They have like ten different work streams. They are being funded by companies. They are building actual like security scorecards, tools. They're trying, the Alpha Omega project is trying to identify important projects. Um, we had like Frank Nagel from Harvard uh, with the Critical Infrastructure Initiative and Linux um, tried to do a kind of census of the most important open source projects. Um, OSTIF uh, is doing, is providing security services to companies or open source projects. So they will come in, they will do an audit, they will do an assessment, they will give recommendations for improvement. They will help you provide those improvements. Um, and then we have Open Technology Fund, Tidelift, and other kind of companies that are trying to fill the funding gap. So those are like, you know, open source realizes that there's an issue here and they're, they're really kind of rallying support to fix it. Um, and, you know, I, 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 I shit on vendors throughout my paper, all of my writing, but that is not to say there are no companies that are being really responsible here. There are definitely companies that are... Um, that are that have put a lot of emphasis on open source security. Do I think that like the amount of money that they're contributing is enough? No, I think like ten million dollars to a major company is like is, is not a whole lot, um, but it's good. It's something. Uh, there's also you know companies, the NSA, they contribute code. So some companies are definitely doing that. Now, Google, Intel has, I think Microsoft is the single biggest contributor to Linux. Um, it has full time employees contributing code, which is phenomenal. Um, and then, you know, this is, I think that people have mixed feelings about this, but the private sector is kind of coming in and building, I think what Eric Brewer of Google called the curation layer. And so recognizing that there are very important projects that a lot of people rely on that might not be able to be maintained. And I mean, this is the nature of open source. I might build a project because I needed it and it was fun to do. And I was like, Hey, why not like provide it to other people? That doesn't mean I like want to like be like tied to it forever and have to maintain it. I did it for fun. I didn't want to be a security expert or maintainer. So that's not, that's not a me problem. Um, so what I think uh, companies like Red Hat or Google to services do is they come in, they take these projects, 
and they provide a secure version of them. They say, you know, we will continue to provide the code for free. You know, it's open source code, but we are going to provide the maintenance layer on top of it. Um, we will ensure that we are doing the checks that you would want, ideally, a commercial software vendor to do for any software you buy from them. And we're going to do that for open source. Um, there's concerns, I think, the open source community about corporate capture there, like too much of a corporate hand in open source that's going to kind of um, detract from the ethos of open source. Um, I don't have a conclusive opinion on both sides. I think that there's really valid reasons to think that, um, I guess my, I do not think that there's evil intent. I think that companies can have blind spots on what they think is important and what they don't think is important. I think that it is, you know, when you have a profit incentive and a reputation incentive, your eyes will always go towards the most visible and sexy kind of project to support and promote and say that you're involved in. But that doesn't mean that those are the most important projects. I mean, the thing that still baffles me in the open source world is that OpenSSL, despite Heartbleed, still has like barely more funding today than it did back in 2014. Um, and so clearly the resources are not being optimally allocated when it's left up to the private sector. Um, and then there's government efforts in this space too. So, you know, there was a cybersecurity EO, which essentially the big push in government is trying to get at securing open source by putting some responsibility on federal contractors. And these are kind of like procurement guidelines. Before a federal agency buys software, they need to require that the um, company be, you know, taking responsible security measures, uh, provide an SBOM, various other things. The guidance has said that this includes open source software. There was also kind of guidance from NIST on critical infrastructure software. That also includes open source as long as it is in a system that the federal government uses or is open source managed by the federal government. And that leaves a large swath of critical infrastructure out of scope. Not all, actually, some argue the majority of critical infrastructure is purely privately held. It is not being held and sustained by the federal government. And so you're not getting at all of that. Um, and then, you know, getting to SBOMs. I think SBOMs are phenomenal. Like, we have ingredients lists on food. Um, they, like, we should have it on software. But... I think like ingredients list on food, we have like 30% of the ingredients I recognize, 70% I can't even pronounce. I, I, I can only trust that the FDA is like, yeah, sure, this is safe for consumption. But we don't have something similar with SBOM because you can give one to me, but would I know how to operationalize it? Um, and to that end, CISA is developing the VEX framework, the Vulnerability Exchange Framework, which I think is great. It'll provide context around an SBOM. It'll say, these are the vulnerabilities that are most important. These are the ones you need to prioritize now. It'll kind of give the information that I, as a non-expert, would not be able to do myself with an SBOM, but that is not required yet, um, not even for federal contractors. Um, and then, you know, there's just a long history of NIST having developed very good but voluntary cybersecurity frameworks. And so I think that there's value to them. And a lot of responsible companies look to them as best practices and try to implement them, but not everyone. And you will see like GAO uh, reports that review NIST framework effect, um, efficacy say that the voluntary nature of them inhibits their effectiveness. 
Yeah, you, man, you raised a lot of good points there. So I'm going to go back and try to touch on some of them. Uh, one was you talked about Microsoft, for example, their involvement and other big companies like that. And I think we've come such a long way from people using terms like Parasite to discuss, you know, uh, or, or describe open source to being the biggest contributors and engagers of it. Um you talked about the funding aspect in your research. You point out the effort, you know, by OpenSSF. I've written about their open source uh, security mobilization plan. People go check it out. It's awesome. Uh, def- definitely dig into that plan. It touches on everything from developer education, incident response, you know, all kinds of great aspects, you know, SBOM and integrity and SIGSTOR and so on. Uh, but you point out that uh, even that has some challenges around funding. Uh, and, and, you know, in terms of how critical this is versus what the funding is compared to other things, maybe across other areas of society. Um, you know, Tide Lift, you brought up them. I had them on the show. Uh, they're doing some really interesting things around like kind of a crowdsourced, crowdfunded model around open source. And I think that that's a, a really interesting way to approach it and get people who are using projects to contribute funds to help keep those projects resilient and robust. Um, and everything you brought up was OpenSSL. And, I, and, and what's funny about you bringing that up is uh, I just saw something yesterday with folks in my ecosystem sharing that there's another vulnerability or some pretty critical vulnerability associated with OpenSSL. So definitely I want to circle back and read on that myself. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you talk about uh, you know things like the Open Source uh, Security Act, uh, as well as the OMB memo that's requiring you know uh, uh, vendors essentially to self-attest to SSDF, NIST Secure Software Development Framework, or even use a 3PAO, a third party, you know, to come in and assess and attest to that, like you do in FedRAMP, for example. Uh, I've been a federal employee on the on the FedRAMP team in the past. Um, you know, out of curiosity, how do we balance you know this this call for security and more secure vendors, but also uh, a robust thriving ecosystem of of uh, uh, and across our supply chain? For example, if you look at things like CMMC or FedRAMP uh, as good examples, FedRAMP's been around for ten years. You know, there's tens of thousands of SaaS providers in the marketplace and FedRAMP has less than 300 offerings in our marketplace for the federal government to use. On the federal front, you know, we've seen a massive consolidation of, you know, defense industrial based suppliers, for example, because, you know, big mergers and acquisitions and now these new emerging requirements like CMMC and so on are going to probably exacerbate that even further. You know, how do we have a thriving ecosystem of suppliers and, and you know, vendors but also a, a more secure ecosystem as well. It seems like a, a very difficult, delicate dance to do. Yeah. Um, I would not purport to be a federal contracting expert, but I think that I've thought the same thing about FedRAMP. I worked briefly at a trade organization and we worked on, um, I worked for tech companies that sold to the federal government. And, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on this, but my instinct was, there is already a heavily centralized market of vendors that are selling to the federal government. And that, yes, this might exacerbate it, but it's not that we're going to go from the number of actual vendors out there to a substantially smaller proportion just by implementing this. Unfortunately, whether fortunately or unfortunately, a small portion already have captured most of the federal market. I think that's why the government thinks federal contracting um, guidelines and requirements will be effective is that a lot of the big tech companies are selling to the federal government. Um, But then on the flip side, uh, yeah, you're not having the diversity of vendors uh, selling to the government. Now for the certification process, I, I think the fact that, this is open source and not just proprietary software. We can have a different certification process. We don't have the same questions of um, needing a process that you maintain the confidentiality of code and business practices 
that makes it more onerous and longer and a fewer number of entities can do it and people don't necessarily know that they want to go through it for risk of sharing information they don't want to share. You know, if if code is open, I mean, this will only get at one part of the software lifecycle. But if you can certify certain projects up front, as I mentioned, like that will be to fix the vulnerability at the source of the open source component, as opposed to one that's at the application layer, will get you, I think, a long way in improving any of the software that's using it. Now, certification for proprietary software that is being used by the federal government, I think is its own beast. And that I think, I think is absolutely worth tackling, but I think that looks different than looking at a project, a pure project in the open source ecosystem before it's being implemented and securing that and certifying that as um, safe for use. Yeah, I think uh, the the pushing to the proprietary proprietary aspect kind of addresses the least cost avoider situation in the sense that uh, it puts the onus back on the proprietary software vendor who are often using many open source software components that they need to now take a look at and say, are we using vulnerable components in our proprietary products and services that we're selling to the government? And it puts the onus back on that least cost avoider. So I think that that's going to address it from that angle. I will say uh, some skeptics, you made, you made the point about, you know, that already there is a niche subset of the industry that sells to the government. Uh, but the government also, if you look at tech projects, has a longstanding history of projects that are over costs, over schedule and deliver, you know, essentially nothing in many cases. Uh, so people are arguing for a more diverse ecosystem of suppliers for that reason. Uh, so I think that, that kind of presents a unique challenge in the sense that, yes, maybe we have the same vendors because they can meet these security requirements, but then maybe we have the same outcomes, which aren't great. If you look at some of the, the, the traditional history of uh, IT development and projects in the government space, for example. Um, another thing I want to ask you, I know we're running out of time here is, you know, how do we keep the balance of the spirit of open source in terms of, you know, being able to have a society of citizen developers and thriving free, free and open source uh, software ecosystem while also, while also pushing for more rigor and governance? Uh, you know, how do we balance that, uh, that, that, that kind of meat, basically? Um. I'll answer that with kind of like pulling a little bit from our last discussion of um, wanting to diversify uh, the source of software for the federal government. I mean, one theory, and who knows if this will actually play out, is open. I mean, the federal government is also a contributor to open source. They use open source themselves. They build custom software. They contribute back to projects like Linux. There is also like risk averseness in the federal government. And there's very stringent DOD policies, for example, around when you know military entities can use open source. So if you did provide some security assurances for open source components, maybe that would actually increase the or like decrease reliance on specific vendors because it would allow federal agencies to feel more secure, more comfortable going directly to the source of those open source components and building it themselves rather than relying on a vendor that would be much more expensive. I don't know. That's a theory, but um, you know that's maybe my optimistic possibility like hopefully that could happen um but to the balance of maintaining the open source ecosystem and um imposing some rigor i think that this is not to like beat the dead horse here but why i keep going back to the least cost avoider i don't want to put the burden on the open source community i don't i do want open source developers to use to two-factor authentication because uh, account takeovers are the largest risk to projects and it's really bad and we should definitely do something small to fix that. Um, that being said, liability shouldn't go there. Um, really like hundreds of 
questions, long questionnaires about like GDPR compliance and log4j security assessments, that's not going to be helpful because they're that's that's just too much to put on an open source community, even if they are paid by corporations. Um, that being said, I think that there are a lot of existential threats to open source and just open Internet generally right now. Um, security is one of them. And how we decide to like put allocate burdens, which is why I say put it on the commercial side and not on the open source side. But there's also this question of kind of like export control, digital sovereignty. Like this is out of the scope of what we were talking about. But there is movement internationally. Like the EU is very pro open source, but is also very pro moving towards EU EU based open source. But open source is famously international. I don't know what EU based open source means or looks like. And so I think that what we choose to do with where we impose regulation institutions and oversight on open source will also have international effects because it'll either continue to fragment the open ecosystem or make our international partners even more skeptical of our source code. I, I don't know, but I think that that's a consideration that needs to be taken into account. Yeah, you actually brought something up that someone made a comment on in the audience is that, you know, open source is a, a global challenge, not a national one. So I do apologize for being a very U.S. Uh, centric uh, conversation here, but this is the area and that I'm most comfortable and competent in. Uh, I, you know, I couldn't speak to the global challenges quite as well. Um, so it is definitely a global challenge. Um, and, and also you talked about the Department of Defense and national security. I, I've worked in that space, you know, being active duty military in the past and so on. Uh, they released, you, you talk about this as well, I think, is that they released uh, an open source software memo from the DOD chief information officer. Uh, that's part of the more broader DOD uh, software modernization strategy. So for folks not familiar with that and, and curious what's going on in the national security space or in open source, uh, definitely check out both those artifacts. Um, so that said, I know we only have a few minutes left. I wanted to ask, you know, one, where can folks find you or follow more of your content and your publications and so on? And two, uh, and this is maybe a difficult one, but, you know, looking forward, say, five years, you know, what are your predictions on, on where we are in five years around open source software security and software supply chain? Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I think Chris has done a great job of elevating my case for on LinkedIn. But um, I I am also available. My email is... Uh, Chinmai, my first name, dot Sharma at law.utexas.edu. Um, if you Google me online with UTexas, you can find my email. And I'm happy to talk at any time. I A lot of my research was talking to as many people that care about open source as possible to get an understanding of what's out there. Um, so I'm happy to talk to you regardless of where you sit in that ecosystem, even if you're not in the open source ecosystem. Um, in terms of where I think we'll be in five years, um, probably not as far along as we want to be. Um, it's why I think I have uh, some skepticism around the proposed open source security software um, act. I don't think that we can develop a framework for securing open source in a year, let alone actually carry out that assessment and then actually implement it in the private sector. Like, we struggle to get federal agencies to comply with even the most basic cybersecurity requirements today. In various cybersecurity scorecards, we have agencies nearly failing, if not failing. Um, and so I do have some skepticism. That being said, the momentum has been immense. Uh, I, I'm hopeful about that. I think you'll probably see... Um, more push than you would have than I would have I than I would have guessed if you asked me back in January 
about this. Um, and hopefully, you know, this is me beating my own drum. If we start having serious conversations about liability, even if we don't do anything with it, I think just the conversations will scare enough people. And I think already have begun to scare enough companies that they'll start changing their practices. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer, so maybe like I have a hammer and everything looks like a nail, but I do think that this is how you, um, I think that liability is almost like a switch you can flip to change that entire incentive structure that I was talking about. All of a sudden, it is no longer the cost benefit analysis favors doing nothing and free riding and being irresponsible. So hopefully, I hope that's where we go in five years. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Uh, uh, accountability or liability, I guess you'd say from a legal perspective, is definitely going to change the game if that manifests, you know, and covers commercial entities that we talked to are often precluded from these kind of things uh, for a variety of, of reasons. I just hope we can also see it happen in a way that doesn't constrain uh, government and society's access to innovative technologies, which is definitely a difficult thing to do. Um, so I'm interested to see how it unfolds as well. I think uh, one thing to point out, too, is like, you know, there's tons of momentum in this space and, and more than I had even anticipated, you know, coming out of the cyber executive order and so on. Uh, and often we compare it to other industries, but we need to remember, you know, like at food or manufacturing and so on. But software is fairly immature compared to some of these other industries in terms of uh, adoption and just its pervasiveness across society. So uh, that's I think we're heading in the right direction and a good direction. And I really, really appreciate your your research. I've cited it in a book I'm writing and I've read it twice now. I got it printed out and sent to me via FedEx. So uh I definitely recommend everyone check it out and follow uh, Kim Mai to follow her additional research and writing on the topic. And thanks so much for tuning in. And thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks for having me.